Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Last week we studied uh, chapter 20. We concluded it, which many believe is the single most controversial chapter in the whole book of Revelation. And we talked about it in the light of the the three views of that chapter. There's three different views, and they all are centered around this 1,000-year reign of Christ called the millennium, and there's different views of that. The amillennial view is that there is no physical, literal reign of Jesus on earth for 1,000 years. It's symbolic, and in fact, we're currently living in that symbolic period of time And as we reach the end of it, Satan would become more active for a brief period of time. And then the second coming of Christ would eventually bring a new heaven and a new earth. The post-millennial view kind of turns that upside down. It teaches that the church will ultimately become more and more successful. The church eventually takes over the earth and invites the reign of Christ on earth. And as we're successful and as we uh, take over more and more and more, Satan eventually launches a brief last-minute attempt to destroy the work of the kingdom here on earth, and eventually Christ returns, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth. That's, in a nutshell, more or less, the the post-millennial view. And then there's the premillennial view, and there's a pretty good chance that most of you in this room are most familiar with the premillennial view because it's the one that's most widely taught in evangelical American churches, from the Baptist to churches like this, the Assemblies of God, and it teaches that the millennium is a literal millennium, but it doesn't happen until uh, the Antichrist rises and then is defeated in a great battle of Armageddon. Christ personally returns, sets up a literal kingdom for 1,000 years. Uh, At the end of that, Satan is released for a brief period of time for one last rebellion, and then he's cast into the lake of fire along with all those whose names are not written in the book of life. And then the Lord begins to move into what we call chapter 21, which is where we're picking it up. And when we get to chapter 21, in a real sense, there's only two ways to look at it. You can either look at it literally or or, or figuratively. And in some ways, we do both. We assume that it's literal, but there's also a lot of beautiful uh, ways we can even see it and apply it to to our life and to the kingdom even now. Um, So we're getting ready to take a very amazing glimpse into the future. And also peel back one of the few images we have in Scripture of heaven and the future and eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of think that Christians have funny ideas about heaven. They do. They're not only always informed by Scripture. One of my favorites actually comes from uh, Mark, Mark Twain's book, Huckleberry Finn. How many of you ever read Huckleberry Finn, right? Okay. My daughter Anna's reading it right now. Um, Mark Twain portrays this typical view of heaven. There's the old church lady, Miss Watson. She's like, you know, I mean, she could have been Dana Carvey, right? And and Miss Watson is always looking down her nose at the free-spirited Huck Finn. And and, and preaching at him one day, she says this. I'm going to read. She went on and on and told me about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there is go around with a harp and sing all day. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she thought Tom Sawyer would be there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. And I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Now, there's the vision, right? There's something to get excited about. And if we're honest, this is a lot of the people's view of heaven. It's this guy, 
we're going to sit around, we're going to play the harp, right? No wonder nobody's in a hurry to get there. No wonder. And by and large, Christians do not understand what the Scripture really teaches. Otherwise, we would be more excited. When you realize that eternity is really described as a beautiful world with mountains and rivers and majesty and cities where we will have jobs as, as governors and over cities and, and nations and maybe even worlds. And by the way, the Bible teaches all of that. Suddenly, heaven is not boring at all. This is boring. It sounds like a promotion, and it is a promotion, isn't it? The early church really, you see it so much in their writings. They, they really were excited about dying and going to heaven. Now, granted, they were being persecuted. Death was a reality. They were facing it. But, but I'll give you an example. In 125, there was a Greek from Athens named Aristides, and Aristides decided to write a letter to the emperor Hadrian. Hadrian was coming into Athens, and he was going to write and he was going to present this, and it's called, it's called uh, Aristides' Apology is how it's gone down through history. This is about 125 A.D., and he's trying to explain to Hadrian what the Christians really were. There were a lot of bad information out there. There was a lot of misconceptions about what Christians were, and, and so he, he wanted to try to explain to Hadrian, but he gives this little insight, and he says this, if any righteous man from among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and they offer thanks to God, and they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were simply setting out from one place to another nearby. That seems so radical to those Greeks and Romans. The Christians aren't screaming and crying and squalling when they go to a funeral. They're throwing a party. Thanks to Aristides, we know that that's what the early church did. They were excited when a believer passed. Cyprian expressed it this way. He said, let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us from this place and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores to us paradise and the kingdom. Anyone who's been in a foreign land longs to return to his native land, and we regard paradise as our native land. That's the perspective. And sometimes we moderns, I think, have forgotten that this is really about eternity. We're living for eternity. So tonight we're going to take on a little bit of the Bible's view of eternity, which, by the way, is not just spent in heaven. It's actually spent on an amazing earth. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, the idea of a new heaven and a new earth uh, and a new sky, it's, it's a familiar theme in Scripture. Actually, both, both New Testament and Old Testament prophetic voices spoke about a new heaven and a, a new earth. In Isaiah 67, Isaiah said, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create a Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now, it's interesting, and Hebrew scholars have pointed out, that when he talks about that he's creating a, a, a new heavens and a, a new earth, the Hebrew word create means to create out of nothing. So he's, just, he's not just cleaning up the old one. He's refashioning, not refashioning this out of old material, but he's making something completely new. 
Psalm 102.25, it says, You laid the foundations of the earth of old, and the heavens are the work of their hands, your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment and like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. Interesting. In 2 Peter, of course, in 2 Peter 3, tells us this, looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so we have several scriptural witnesses. So John's not just the first one who throws the idea out here that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God intends to renew the resource that is planet earth. And you think this one is cool. You think this one is amazing. Wait till you see what he has planned. And by the way, when he speaks of a new heaven, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the heaven where God is enthroned. Um, this might not be new to you. This may be new to you. But when the Bible speaks of heaven, it often speaks of heaven in three different senses. First of all, there's, there's the, the heaven that's the earth's atmosphere, the sky, this firmament, if you will, between space and earth the place where the birds fly. There's the, the heavens, and sometimes that's an expression of, of heaven. And then there's an expression Paul used, and you can find it elsewhere in some of the ancient writings, where Paul talks about, I was caught up into the third heaven. Now, when he talks about the third heaven, he's talking about the heaven where, where we've seen a lot of the action here in Revelation, the throne room of the Lord, where the Lord himself dwells, the most high heaven, okay? This is the place an eternal place where the dwelling of the Lord has, has been. So when, um, uh, when you think of, when most of the time we think of heaven, we're thinking of, of the third heaven. And, and, and so you may ask, well, what's the second heaven? Well, most theologians will tell you the second heaven is, is that unseen realm where angels and demons dwell. We are surrounded, if you will, by the second heaven. We talk about uh, spiritual forces in heavenly realms, we're talking about this unseen, heavenly world, this other dimension that exists simultaneously all around us. Are you getting confused? Good, that's just my ministry. So when the Bible speaks about a new heaven, it doesn't, it, most people generally believe that it's referring to the, to, the, to the first and the second heavens, the skies above and the heavenly realms, not necessarily the Lord is refitting his throne room. Um, it's also interesting to note that the Greek word that's translated new when he talks about a new earth, um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean new in time. It just it means, it means it's, it's new in character. It's changed. It's, it's better than the old. It's, it's new and improved, right? The old one has passed away, and this is a brand new. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. What a profound statement. So again and again and again, we see that earth and heavens as we have known them are, are, are temporary. Now, there's one phrase there that kind of throws people sometimes when it says, there will be no more sea. How many of you like to fish and are going, seriously, Lord? No. Um, literally, I don't believe that the, the Greek indicates that, that there's not oceans. It, it seems more like this, that, that the way, if you read it the way John writes, especially John, who it's not necessarily, as I've said many times, chronological. It's like he says, um, the, the, the heavens will be new and the earth will be new. And, oh, oh by the way, there's the, 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 the sea will be renewed too. Does that make sense? It, it, 
he's in other words, he's he's throwing that in at the end that there that the sea, which was the old seas, will obviously be done. Oh, I forgot to mention the sea. Does that make sense? So while there's some theologians who believe, oh, there's not going to be any ocean, there's other people who take a little more a literal rendering of it and say that no, he he's referring to it, you know, kind of in retrospect. Oh yes, by the way, the the sea is also going to be going to be renewed. Verse two. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. For her husband. This is the Jerusalem that was longed for by the saints of old. This is the Jerusalem that Abraham looked for. Remember Hebrews eleven ten that says he looked forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now this is that. In Hebrews 12, 22, but you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. This is this Jerusalem. This is holy and new. It's completely different from any earthly city. It's interesting because he calls it Jerusalem. That means it's familiar. It has continuity with the Jerusalem that we've known. And yet, here this one is sinless and pure and righteous. It is a holy city. In fact, John describes it as a bride who's beautifully prepared for her husband. Now, that's the most striking image that John could probably come up with. It, it, he sees this coming down, and he's, it's like to him, it appears like a beautiful bride coming down the aisle to her husband. That's the way it seemed to him. That was kind of his emotional response as he saw this beautiful city coming. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now is the dwelling of God with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's got to be one of the coolest promises in Scripture, amen? In the old days, the Lord spoke through prophets and priests. Sin separated men from coming into the presence of the Lord. And, uh, you know, even now we can come through in the Spirit, through prayer, in the new covenant. And, but then God will live in the neighborhood. I mean, that's really the picture we're seeing here. It's hard for our brains to wrap around. The tabernacle or the dwelling of God is with men, and he will be with them. Uh, for Moses, the, the tabernacle represented his dwelling place on earth, but it was really the representation of his dwelling place, right? But what John is painting a picture of is, is more of a reality. It's an actual place, and here we as the glorified saints are literally living in the city that's coming down out of heaven. It's not just up there, by the way. Here again, this is coming down into this new earth. This is a restoration. This is a restoration of everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden. That's what we're seeing here, okay? God's desire has always been to live in close fellowship with you, with his people, he created man to walk in the cool of the day, right, to be with him, to fellowship with him. And now this is the restoration. This is what God's been working out all along. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This has got to be one of the most comforting passages in the Word of God. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Every tear, every tear you've shed for a lost loved one, 
the tears of sympathy, the tears of mercy, the tears for injustice, the tears for pain, the tears of persecuted innocence, the tears of guilt, shame, disappointment, neglect, tears of rejection, tears of loss, tears of yearning for what can't be. Whatever tear stains the cheek of mortal man is destined to be wiped away. The former things have passed away. The old order of injustice, the old order of sin is no more. This does not exist in the New Jerusalem. It's, it's very hard for us to wrap our brains around because we live in the old order now. But there is coming a new order that is so radically different that all those kinds of things, the concepts of injustice that we live with all the time. Why we have to have an in, a justice system is because there's injustice. And our justice system is failed and flawed, and it's completely dependent upon our knowledge of right and wrong, which, by the way, is rooted in the tree of knowledge and good and evil. That's the subject from another day. But you and I, understanding of what is right and what is wrong is rooted in our fallen nature. So the best justice system on planet Earth, the absolute best we can possibly do, even the ones God has ordained us to have, like government, which God ordained government, it's completely flawed. It'll never provide true justice on planet Earth. It's incapable of it because it's based on us. But now God completely sets this. In many ways, the new Jerusalem that's described here in Revelation is distinguished by what it doesn't have. It doesn't have tears. It doesn't have sorrow. It doesn't have death. It doesn't have pain. And later on, we're going to see it doesn't have a temple. There's no sacrifices. There's, there's no need. There's no sin. There's no sun, no moon, no darkness, no abominations. There's a very classic work on the book of Revelation by a guy named Joseph Seiss. It's called Seiss's Apocalypse. It's, it's known as. And, and, and Seiss says it this way. Man comes into the world with a cry, and he goes out of it with a groan. And all between is more or less in tone with helpless wailing. He was a melancholy. But the hallelujahs of the renewed world will drown out the voice of woe forever. That's beautiful, isn't it? Verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, this word comes from the throne itself. The one speaking, this is one of the few times in Revelation we clearly know it is God himself speaking from the throne. John makes sure that we hear who is making this promise. I am making everything new. And here's what's interesting. In the Greek, this is in the present tense. God who dwells outside of the concept of time. God is declaring this in the present tense. He's not saying I am going to make all things new. That is not what it says. What John, what John hears the Lord prophetically say to him is, right now, now in the eternal of eternal, in this moment, I am in the process of making all things new. And that tells me that process is underway now. You and I are part of that process in which everything is being made new. The story of creation is the story of redemption. I mean, if you want to know the heart of God, he is always in the business of restoration. Paul commented on this. He, he, he realized that the whole work of the gospel was about this. He said this. He said, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we don't lose heart. 
Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That's 517. God is always working a plan. He's always making it new. He's always redeeming. And here we see the Lord himself declaring at the end of this, as it's actually come into being, but declaring back towards us, I'm making everything new. Everything's been made new. Have you ever wished Adam didn't do what he did? You're like, can I just kick you now? I mean, look, Adam, I'll slap you. I mean, be honest. I mean, how many are you going to meet Adam and go, oh, you? Consider this. A redeemed man glorifies the greatness of God way beyond an innocent man. The Lord has done something remarkable. All created beings in the cosmos marvel at the fact that ultimately we are gaining more through Jesus Christ than we lost through Adam. The angels that did not fall, they don't even glorify the Lord in the way that fallen and redeemed man glorifies his greatness, glorifies his grace, demonstrates who he is. That was a good place to say amen. All things are made new. And then he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that. Lord says, look, I am making all things new. Hey, John, write it down. Hey, buddy, pay attention. I'm giving you a word here. Count on it. And then he said to me, verse 6, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Wow. When John saw all of this, uh, the one who was on the throne turned his attention to John and said, look, it's done. I've accomplished my eternal purposes. Paul spoke of it to the Ephesians when he said, and he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head that is Christ. What Paul is talking about here, John is seen declared prophetically in these pages of Revelation, okay? And by the way, we're still living under the promises here of, of Ephesians. Okay, It's coming. But here we see the Lord declaring it, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then having revealed that, revealed, here's, here's how it's ended up, John. Now, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now, that's a promise that's been given to you and to me. As we wait for this to be fulfilled, as every day of our lives, we're waiting for the revealing of this very thing that John is telling us about, that we're living for. No cost. You can't pay for it. We can't possibly pay for it. But his water is there for us. Jesus said it this way. Actually, he did it in a couple of places. One of the woman at the well, he said to her, he said, look, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask him for this life, and, and it would be a spring of water welling up in you to eternal life. Remember that? He did it elsewhere in John. It says on the last day of the feast, he stood and cried out in a loud voice, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Now, I love that passage because what Jesus didn't say is important. He didn't say, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me, and I will give him gallons of water. Here, here's a truckload. I'm going to back the truck up. You can drink and drink and drink and drink. He didn't say that. He said, if you are thirsty, I'm not only going to give you to drink, I'm going to turn you into a fountain of living water for others. And as you are the fountain of water for others, you yourself will be continually, constantly quenched. I've met a lot of believers who seem to constantly be going from one high to another. They travel from one event to the next to the event. They're looking for something constantly. But they're never giving it away. I'm just being real. They're, they're kind of grand spiritual consumers. Give me, give me, give me. Here's my need. Let me get my need met. And they always seem to be thirsty. And I'm going to tell you why they're, 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 they're thirsty. They're not giving it away. We're not made to just consume water. It's not how it works. We're supposed to be a fountain of living water, a constant source of life and eternity encouragement. We're supposed to be giving it away all the time. And in the process of giving it away, there is life. Remember, it was right after the woman at the well that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, look. They said, eat, Jesus, stop talking to this woman. Eat something, hear something, drink something. And he said, look, I have meat and drink you don't know of. Jesus had found his hunger and his thirst satiated in doing the work of his Father. We are the same. That is who we are. We are designed as creatures like that, and unless we are more focused on others and meeting their needs than our own, we will be unsatisfied humans. That wasn't in the notes tonight, but boy, that was a great sermon. Aren't you glad you came? Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. When it's getting better and better, isn't it? What a promise. Here's the future reality of the day-to-day living with the Lord in reality. And we talk about our Father who's in heaven, and we see him in that way. This is when it's daily, continual, never-ending reality. You see why we look forward to this? But by the way, his invitation to all of this beauty comes with a warning. And that's in the next verse. Verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, here he's describing this incredible kingdom, this new Jerusalem, and then he describes who is going to be on the outside of the kingdom. He describes the cowardly. This is interesting. That's where he starts, the cowardly. Most people wouldn't think of, you know, being fearful as a sin, but let me tell you, Fear is how the enemy controls. And if we let him drag us around and we live our life and we make our choices based on what we're afraid of, inevitably we will be outside of the kingdom experience. When we seek to save our lives, we lose it. You must walk in faith to experience the kingdom and experience your destiny. The second group that are outside of the kingdom are the unbelieving now, that's not just intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. No, no, no. It, it's going to be evident. There are people amongst us walking who call themselves Christians but are practical atheists because their life bears no fruit. Their life doesn't demonstrate that they really believe it. If they really believe it, how they make their decisions, how they conduct their lives. If you are in faith, as James says, it will be evidenced by your actions. So the unbelieving are outside the kingdom. 
the vile, those who really enjoy evil, those who like it a lot, murderers, people who do not have respect for life. I'm just going to leave that one right there because respect for life is a real issue in the United States of America. And here's another one, the sexually immoral. Greek word there is pornia, where we get our word pornography. Some versions say whoremongers. It, it basically could be described this way. best way to describe it is this. Any sex outside of what God has prescribed. Can I meddle for a minute? I'll just meddle. But he said, yeah. You see, in our culture, we have this concept, and Christians, unfortunately, have bought into it. Can I tell you what the concept is? We call it sexual orientation. And we go this. Well, so there's people over here, and they're gay, and there's people over here who are bi, and there's people over here who are straight. And we define who people are by the activities they enjoy doing. By the desires they have, we've defined them. Do you know the Bible doesn't do that? You're not just defined by your desires. Because, see, in, in the Bible, sexuality is described this way. There's God's plan, and there's everything else. And there's everything else is perversion. And there can be any number of perversions. And guess what? We're fallen creatures. We're fallen humans. And lots of times we desire things that aren't good and aren't God's plan. It doesn't mean you're worse than the next person. It just means that's not God's design. So I say this to you because I think that as believers, when we start talking about the complexity of this subject in our modern culture, we need to be able to move with incredible compassion, incredible love, but understand that people just aren't, don't just define somebody by the temptation and the struggles of their life. Are you hearing me? Because then we, are, we have fallen into the very prey whereby you lose, you know, there's an old expression, if you ever took any debate classes, you learn that the way you deal with an argument is how you frame it. The key to winning a debate is how you frame the argument, right? And, and we've kind of gotten pegged into something because the church, unfortunately, has bought this concept of sexual orientation. And the Scripture doesn't teach it. The Scripture teaches there is God's design and perversion, and that perversion can look lots of different ways. But it's not God's plan. And so really what he's talking about here, listen, there's really no difference between people who like to visit prostitutes all the time and someone who's a homosexual or, excuse me, a practicing homosexual. Scripturally, there's not. There's, there's God's plan, and then there's everything else. Boy, you guys have got some good chances to say amen. So it's pretty simple. It's not complicated. What he's basically saying is, listen, those who are walking by faith and have received my kingdom, who God is, who walking with God, turn from designs that aren't God's designs and embrace the Lord's design. Amen. Okay. But those who embrace unclean desires, whatever they are, more than they embrace God, will be outside the city. That's God's word. And you can say, don't preach that, and a denomination may split over it. God bless some United Methodists. I'll get myself in trouble. Sorry if I'm offending those of you who are watching, but no, I'm not really sorry. God bless the denomination of John Wesley. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There was a great attempt in the United Methodist Church to basically change their standards and embrace the uh, ordaining of gay clergy. 
And they came back and said, guys, not only is this not our history, this is not what the Word of God teaches. And it's, it's, not, it's not hate to say, ah, this is what the Word teaches. We've, we've got to take a standard with the Word. That's not hate. Disagreeing with somebody isn't hate. You can hate somebody. You can actively hate somebody. You can, you can mistreat them. You can do a lot of things that's not what we need to be doing. But there's a big difference between that and saying it's a lie to say if you disagree with somebody's life or lifestyle or what they're doing that you hate them. It's not the same thing. Okay. But he doesn't just end there, by the way. He talks about those who use witchcraft, manipulation, witchcraft. People who are idolaters won't be there. People, you know what idolatry is? Putting anything before God. The biggest idolatry is putting ourselves before God. We're the biggest idol that we deal with most of the time, right? Liars. The father of lies is in the fiery lake, and liars are there with him. Boy, this is deep, isn't it? Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came to me and said, Come. The same guy who brought the plagues now says, Come. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried him away, me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Wow, once again, we've got this mystery. Now, that's an interesting picture. It's actually not a bad rendition. We'll talk about it in a second there. But basically, there's, here's this mystery. You have a city and a woman and a people. All one. Just as in previous chapters, we saw the great prostitute, the great whore who was the city of Babylon, who is the world system of Babylon, right? It's literal and symbolic. Here we see the great city, New Jerusalem, which is also the bride of Christ and the, the church. It's, it's us. So sometimes people look at passages like this and they wonder if the New Jerusalem is a literal place at all. But, you know, some say it's just a symbol. But, but in many ways, as we've already learned it can be both literal and symbolic. It certainly was in the case of Babylon, right? It was a real place, but it also has a, a significance, okay, in spiritual things. And I believe the same is true here. The heavenly city is literal, but it's called the bride, the lamb's wife, because it is the place where God's people have gathered together. It's kind of more than we can wrap our brains around, let's be honest. And John is explaining it to us as best as he can see it. It's interesting that the angel takes him and takes him to this high vantage point. When he was down in the valley, he couldn't even see it. But the Lord takes him to this high vantage point. Sometimes before we can really see the things the Lord wants to see us, see, us to see, he moves our feet. That's another story for another day. But, but he's carried to this vantage point. Now he can see this. In verse 11, he says, It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. John was first captured by the glory of the city. That was the first thing he mentioned, the glory of the city. The Lord's radiance was shining from it. He describes a great and a high wall. You know, that doesn't need to be a wall for a defense. There's no more enemies. But walls also, in this case, I think, give the city definition because there's some who are outside of the city who, right? He's already described those who are outside. 
So the wall of the city gives definition, okay? Only the righteous can enter into this city. There's three gates on the east, three on the, uh, you know, some of you might very well recognize that this kind of looks a little bit like the, 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 the camp layout that God gave to Moses in Numbers 2. Some would say this has mathematical or prophetic significance. Numbers in Scripture many, many, many times do. I'm not going to speculate on this tonight because the Lord hasn't given me that. Um, but I will tell you this, there will be a day that you and I will look and we will marvel at the significance of it. We'll go, oh, that is so cool, God. You planned that all along. Because there is significance to it because John specifically gives us the numerology of this. Okay? Um, verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, this is fascinating. The apostles of the Lamb is an interesting term. There are many people who teach today and have been teaching for a few hundred years that there is no such thing as apostles anymore. There were only 12 apostles, and that was the end of the apostles. And um, actually, this is an interesting phrase that they sometimes see. There were just 12 because there's only, there's only room for 12 names on, on the city. But the key is the expression there, the apostles of the Lamb. First of all, the Scripture teaches there were many people who were apostles. Actually, in the New Testament, there are specifically 26 people who are apostles named. Early church writers described as many as 70 during the early church period of time. You see, there's a difference between the ministry gift of the apostle, as described in Ephesians chapter 5, and the apostles of the Lamb. The Lord honored the apostles of the Lamb, not because they were the last of their kind, but because they were the first of their kind. Just like, you know, the 12 patriarchs of, of, of Israel weren't the last ones of their kind. They were the first of their kind, and our tribes were named after them. In the same way, in the same imagery, we're seeing that, that these apostles, who the ministry gift of the apostle to, to, to lay foundations, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, this is very, very critical gift that I do not have the time to teach tonight. Um, we'll do it at another time. Uh, it's been a long time since we've done a lot of teaching pastor on apostleship, hasn't it? But, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an important teaching, understanding, fivefold ministry. But uh, what, what, this, what we're learning here is that these are honored. Now, whether the 12th is Matthias or Paul, I ain't going to get into that tonight. I'll just tell you right now. If you don't even know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Um, the Lord knows who are, whose names are written there. Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its wall. It was 144 cubits thick by a man's measurement, which the angel was using. Now, the New Jerusalem's length, height, and width are measured. That means that this city is like a cube or possibly a pyramid. It could be either, either way because we're looking at these multiple dimensions. Um, a cube is reminiscent of like, kind of like the, the holy place in the tabernacle. So you almost get this picture that the whole city is kind of laid out like the the, the, the holy of holies, um, or the holy place, the size of this is enormous. The, the, uh, that 12,000 stadia is like the 1,500 miles. That's kind of like Maine to Miami, okay? It's pretty, pretty, pretty. The, the entire cubic footage of this city is about the size of the moon. And he specifically gives us this. 
Um, in fact, it's interesting because some, it's led some to say this is going to be in orbit around the Earth. Who knows? Um, Henry Morris did a formula one time. He, he said that uh, uh, there's probably going to be 100 billion people saved throughout history, and that if, uh, oh, excuse me, 100 billion people throughout history that live, and if 20% of them are saved, that means each of us have about 75 acres. <laughs> anyway, you look at it, your neighbors aren't going to be living on top of you, okay? Just to give you a little good news. There's plenty of room in the New Jerusalem. And he says its wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was dat jasper, the second sapphire. The third, uh, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the fifth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophars, I don't even know what that is, <laughs> the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. I know what that is. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl. This great street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And we read, when we read jasper and gold and all kinds of precious stones. I think that we should take these as, as literal representations, but they're expressing a reality that's clearly another world's reality. Okay? We can gain a brief glimpse of what John saw, but we really can't, I think, see it in fulfillment with our own eyes. You can paint it. You can do everything you want to, but this is so beyond. John is using what words he can possibly use. In fact, there's been some debate on the precise identification of these gemstones because it's really not even completely clear in the Greek. It's, in modern terms, it's difficult. But let me tell you what's not difficult to see. This is staggering beauty. This is beauty beyond what any mortal eye had ever seen until this moment. And, and we got to understand that, that these are ideas being communicated, glory, splendor, beauty. Ultimately, we got to keep in mind that, as Hebrews 11 says, this is a city whose architect and maker is God. No human made this city. It is beyond what you and I can possibly comprehend. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Wow. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Well, there's no need for, you know, it was unthinkable in John's day to not need a temple, but, but because the Lord is with us and he's washed and purified us, there's no need for a temple. Here everything is lined up, everything is holy, and here we have the dwelling place of God. You know, before Jesus, the temple was a prophecy. I love what Jesus said. He said the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Even the layout of the tabernacle, all those rules and regulations and exact measurements that God gave to Moses. It's all a prophecy of Jesus. My, uh, my wife's grandmother used to travel around the country with a model of the tabernacle in her trunk, and she would teach, and we're talking back in the 40s and the 50s, she would teach people how uh, all of these measurements and all these were symbolic of all the things that Jesus did and how this is totally fulfilled in the new covenant. I don't have time for this tonight. It is, it is beautiful. The Lord absolutely when he gave that law, it was completely pointing us to Jesus all the way through John. And, and now we're seeing the complete and total fulfillment. Here the temple is everywhere. There's no need of the sun or the moon. The Lamb is its light. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The kings of the earth, now listen to this, the kings of the earth, there's kings of the earth bringing glory and honor into it. Who are they? It's difficult to really understand, but obviously there's going to be government and relationships, and we're told that we're judges. We're told that we're going to be involved in that government. Maybe you and me. But one thing for sure, there's clearly government, and there's clearly activities, and there's clearly commerce. Okay, this isn't, we're just all sitting around waiting for God to say something. No, there's activities, there's commerce. You know, you know, commerce can honor the Lord. Well, that's another subject for another day, but you know what? It's true, okay? There's no night there, and there's all kinds of government and commerce and relationships and activities going around. That's why I said we're not sitting on clouds, y'all. That's not what we do. Verse 26, the glory and honor of nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I love when it says the honor of nations. The word there is ethnos, where we get our word ethnic. In other words, people of different colors. So, so people of different races, people of different nations. So you get a sense that there's actually nationalities. I don't understand it. But somehow or other, there's identity of nationality, and there's, there's peoples and different groups and maybe even different worlds. Who knows? But there's certainly different identities, but all of them are pure and walking uprightly before the Lord, coming and enjoying presence of the Lord as they come and go in this incredible world of commerce. Interesting picture, isn't it? It's a little different from what Miss Watson was giving to Huck Finn. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.